is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Today's case was actually recommended by a former columnist for the San Jose Mercury News who wrote a book on this case, and that is Scott Harold. So thank you so much. And if anybody is really interested in this case after hearing today's episode and you want almost a 400-page scoop on this story with all the latest since that book came out this year, check it out. So big thanks again to Scott for recommending this one and for all the hard work that you put in on Arliss's case. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. And I have one quick announcement before we get into today's episode. As some of you Going West listeners probably know, I have been making music lately and I'm really, really excited about it. I'm about to put out my very first single under the artist name Ghostly. The song is called Numb. And I've actually got a really cool music video that I shot recently um, that's going to be coming out with that song as well. So please go over and support me. I'm on Instagram at ghostly.la. Again, the song is called Numb. Yeah, that's coming out, what, next week? Yeah, it's coming out next week, next Wednesday, so the 15th. It is so good, like genuinely, I'm not just saying this because you're my husband, but Heat's music is amazing, so go check it out, and we'll remind you guys next week so you can check out that music video. Yes, I would appreciate it so much. All right, enough of the music plug. Let's get into today's very disturbing case. This is episode 356 of Going West, so let's get into it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In October of 1974, a 19-year-old woman headed to her church at midnight after she and her husband got into an argument. But when she didn't return home that night, her husband reported her missing. When her body was found inside in a ritualistic manner just hours later, police began a painstaking investigation. Decades later, when a DNA match was made, a shocking ending came to her case. This is the story of Arliss Perry. Arliss K. Dykema was born on February 22, 1955, in the small rural city of Linton, North Dakota, to Jean and Marvin, along with her brother Larry and sister Karen. 
But after her birth, the Dykemas moved about an hour north to the much larger capital city of Bismarck, North Dakota. And it was there that she went to Bismarck High School and met the man that would later become her husband, a man named Bruce Perry. Arliss was an intelligent and kind cheerleader and member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes as a huddle leader, which is a nonprofit Christian sports ministry, as she was very dedicated to her religion. And her high school sweetheart, Bruce, was also an athlete, running track and field, but with his sights set on becoming a doctor. In 1973, Arliss and Bruce graduated from high school and continued their relationship, despite Bruce moving across the country to Stanford to begin his pre-med journey studying human biology. With Bruce in California now, Arliss was deciding on what she wanted to do, just knowing that she wanted to be with Bruce long term. But before deciding to join him on the West Coast, she began attending Bismarck Junior College while working for Bruce's family's dental practice as a receptionist. But after nearly a year of being long distance with Bruce on August 17, 1974, the two 19-year-olds got married at the Bismarck Reformed Church, ready to start their life together. So after honeymooning at Arliss's family's cabin, the Perry newlyweds made the move to Palo Alto, California, so they could drop the long-distance relationship and Bruce could continue his studies at the prestigious Stanford University. And for those who don't know, Stanford is technically a community of its own, with its own zip code too, but it's technically in the city of Palo Alto which has since become known as the birthplace of Silicon Valley in the San Francisco Bay Area. And there, Bruce and Arliss moved into Quellen Hall, which is Stanford housing for students who are married or with children. So although this was a big change for Arliss, who had never lived outside of Bismarck or away from her family, she was trying her best to thrive. She got a job as a receptionist nearby at a local law firm so that she could keep busy while Bruce was working and studying, and she even joined the Stanford Memorial Church, all while staying very close in touch with her family and loved ones back in North Dakota. But in such letters to her longtime friends, she expressed her loneliness and her difficulty finding friends. In one letter, she even explained that she was literally going door to door asking people if they needed a new friend, which honestly just sounds very heartbreaking, but also goes to show you just how sweet she was. But when that didn't work, she continued relying on letters to her pre-existing pals in North Dakota. And it was actually sending those people letters that inadvertently led to her demise. Less than two months into their marriage and move, on Saturday, October 12th, 1974, Bruce accompanied Arliss on a late night walk to the mailbox to send off a batch of letters. Now, it was 11.30 p.m., and although Arliss loved to walk in the beautiful California fall weather, Bruce didn't feel super comfortable with it. And since the campus mailbox was a fairly short distance away, so about a half a mile or 0.8 kilometers, he decided to go with her. But during this casual evening jaunt, the two got into a simple married couple fight about their car's tire pressure, something about who was supposed to fill it up. So after dropping off the letters, Arliss told Bruce that she wanted to walk to the church alone and pray by herself, likely just kind of trying to clear her mind and have a moment to herself. So Bruce, who was also annoyed, watched Arliss walk into the memorial church nearby and then set off back home, leaving Arliss to walk back home alone. But hours passed and eventually it was three o'clock in the morning and Arliss had still not returned. By then it had been about three hours since they parted outside the church. So Bruce didn't have a clue where she could be, but he couldn't imagine that she was still praying at the church, especially because by now the church was closed. Yeah. And what's making this even more complicated is it's not like, you know, she left at seven o'clock to go to the mailbox with him. This was, again, around 11.30 p.m., so it being 3 o'clock in the morning, he's probably thinking, well, I mean, it has been three hours, but it's not like it's been 10. But it's also the middle of the night, so sure. it's like, where the hell is she? You know? Sure, and that does feel a little bit more alarming. Exactly. So at about 3 o'clock or a little bit after 3 is when Bruce decided to call the police. 
And he just kind of explained the situation and hoped that they could find her safe and sound. So the first place that they looked was the Stanford Memorial Church, which is the church that she belonged to and went to visit that very night. And by the way, we will post photos so you guys can see because this church is massive and it is absolutely beautiful. So when police arrived in the early morning hours of Sunday, October 13th, 1974, they found that the doors to the church were all locked. Now, in order to ensure that she wasn't inside, they found a nighttime campus security guard, a 28-year-old man named Stephen Crawford, who had actually previously been a Stanford police officer. They found him and they asked him if he would unlock the doors. Well, this was happening around the same time that Stephen had realized that the door on the west side of the church was open and he was looking for investigators to explain what he had found. Now, according to Stephen, just after midnight, so within 15 minutes of Arliss and Bruce parting ways at the church, Stephen cleared the church and locked up for the evening and then checked the doors again two hours later around 2 a.m. Then at 5.45 a.m., upon noticing the west side door was open and had appeared to be forced in, while it was later determined it was forced open from the inside, he investigated. And what Stephen found was the horrific scene of a murder. Near the church's altar, 19-year-old Arliss Perry was found lying face up, deceased. Her death was particularly gruesome because she was not only found to be strangled, but her neck was broken and there was an ice pick still lodged in the back of her head. But terrifyingly, the handle was either missing or had broken off during the act. And thus later, her cause of death would be a stab wound to her cranium. Now, although Arliss was found with her hands folded across her chest, holding a long altar candle, which was positioned between her breasts, she was found without clothes from the waist down. And this next detail is disturbing and it's regarding her genitalia, so just a forewarning, but... There was another candle found at the scene, and this one was a three-foot-long altar candle, and she was sexually assaulted with it. Now, her blouse was ripped open to expose part of the candle on her chest, and the jeans that she had been wearing that night were there as well, but they were laying on top of her legs. So this was, without question, an incredibly unnerving thing to come across. And when campus security officer Stephen Crawford had allegedly stumbled upon this shortly before six in the morning, he found police, who again were already looking for Arliss Perry at this point. So the first thing that police noticed that was strange was that even before seeing Arliss's body, Stephen had a bit of blood on him. But he had a quick excuse for this. He said that he suffered from nosebleeds whenever he was in a very stressful situation, which obviously he was in one at this point. So as police began investigating the horrible scene inside of the Stanford Memorial Church, they collected various pieces of evidence, including altar candles, one of which had a partial palm print on it, and a kneeling pillow near Arliss's body that was found to have semen on it. Off the bat, there were two people immediately suspicious to police. Of course, Arliss's husband, Bruce Perry, who admitted to getting into an argument during their final conversation and then walking away, and then Stephen Crawford, who had been the one to lock up the church and later stumble upon Arliss's body. So although it was 1974, they did the very best that they could with the evidence that they had and tried to connect the partial palm print to both of these men but neither of them were a match. And it didn't match to anyone else that they had tested it against either, making them immediately wonder who could have done this to Arliss and how. Well, police still didn't want to let 28-year-old Stephen Crawford fully off the hook, so they even tested the blood that was found on him and discovered that it did belong to him, making the nosebleed story even more believable. But still, they questioned him and administered a polygraph test, which he passed. So it kind of didn't feel like there was a whole lot more they could do right now. You know, they, they checked his palm print. 
they questioned him. They did a polygraph. They checked the blood. Yeah, he's saying, I didn't do this. I was out patrolling. I checked the doors at these times. I locked up and nobody was in there. You know, he's giving this whole story and the police are kind of like, okay, well, what, are we, what else can we really do here? Yeah, but at the same time, it's like they know that Arliss was found inside the church. So it seems almost impossible that Stephen wouldn't have noticed anything when he was locking up. Which is why it was really hard for them to let him go. So, and I know, by the way, we skipped ahead for a moment telling you that the DNA at the scene did not match Bruce Perry's, but let's go back to when police uncovered Arliss and the almost like ritualistic way in which she was found. So Bruce was the one to report her missing, like we said, and since they didn't know whether or not he was involved, they didn't want to tell him outright that his wife had been murdered. So they first questioned him about the last time he saw her, etc., and tried to see if he would squirm with anything they suggested because they were kind of trying to pull out a motive for why he would want to kill her if he did, but they couldn't get anything out of him. So Bruce explained that after returning home, knowing the church was closed at midnight, he was confused when Arliss didn't return by 12.15 because they were less than a 10-minute walk away from the church. So he headed back there, only to find that all the doors were locked. So then he kind of walked around the rest of the campus to look for her, but to no avail. And that's when he returned home to wait until 3 a.m. when he called the police. According to Bruce, when he did call the police, he didn't believe anything nefarious had happened. I mean, after all, they lived in a very safe and quaint community and campus. So he originally believed that Arliss had just fallen asleep inside only to be accidentally locked in. So after police felt satisfied with their conversation, they fingerprinted and polygraphed Bruce and he also passed, no longer being considered a person of interest. And it was then that they had to break the news to him that by the time he had reported her missing, his wife of two months was already dead. So after Bruce was informed that his wife had been murdered, he was understandably horrified. I mean, especially with the guilt of their argument and him leaving her at the church just swirling around in his head. And it being a Sunday that she was found, that morning's church had to be held on the lawn as the news of what happened inside radiated across campus. After news spread, someone came forward explaining that they may have seen a man enter the church at about the same time Arliss did, which again was around midnight the night before. This person reported that the man had sandy blonde hair with a medium build, looking to be in his mid-twenties, which by the way, did not seem to match the description of Bruce or Steven. But was this person even responsible anyway? A couple other people came forward as well to report that they saw Arliss enter and go towards the front of the church to kneel in prayer. They were towards the back at the time and left just after she arrived, leaving her alone in the church, which again was massive. So it's worth mentioning that the church closed at midnight. So although Stephen claims he didn't lock the doors until just after midnight, Arliss couldn't have been in there for very long since she arrived shortly before midnight. And at 12.10 a.m. is when Stephen walked in to announce that he was closing the church up and anyone inside would need to exit. Also, according to Stephen, no one was inside to hear this message, meaning according to his account, Arliss was not in the church for more than 15 minutes total. So then how, after he locked the doors, would she have been murdered and laid inside over the course of the night? Well, he did say that he noticed the west door was forcibly opened around 5.45 a.m., but that would mean that someone killed Arliss upon her leaving the church and broke in hours later only to display her body near the altar. So this back and forth really doesn't make any sense, making it hard to believe that Stephen wasn't involved. But again, the police just couldn't connect any actual evidence to him. But then there's the fact that the door appeared to be forced open from the inside, as if maybe someone in the church hid Arliss as Stephen did his rounds and locked up and then spent the next few hours assaulting and killing her before forcing their way outside. Because according to Stephen, the door was not ajar when he did his 2 a.m. check, 
Meaning, if Steven wasn't the killer, then the real killer would have been in there with Arliss for over two hours. Unless the broken door was a ruse. Now, one of the only other people to have access to the church's keys was the chapel's dean, the same man who did the Sunday service on the lawn. So police questioned him, administered him a polygraph test, and checked to see if his palm print was a match to the parcel that they had. But he was cleared, and thus the search continued, with over 100 people's palm prints being compared to the sample, but nobody was a match. They heavily looked into local sex offenders as well, since it did appear that Arliss had been raped before she was murdered because of the semen that was found on the pillow. And obviously, there was the horrific sexual assault with that candle. But with such a brutal and almost personal murder, police were just stumped. Because as we've stated, Arliss was new to town and she was also married. So who would want to do this to her and why? Well, interestingly enough, there was an unknown young man that had visited her at work on the day before she was murdered. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything that you need to sell in person. I absolutely love Shopify. I launched my coffee company, Elders Coffee, with Shopify in December. And it has been such an amazing process. I seriously could not recommend Shopify more. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. And they really do. So what are you waiting for? Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash going west, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash going west to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash going west. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? 
Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for going west, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. Rocketmoney.com slash going west. On Friday, October 1st, 1974, Arliss was just about two weeks into her job at the law firm. Remember, she was working as a receptionist. Now, as we stated, she had been having a pretty hard time making friends, but strangely, a young man came to visit her that afternoon. No one knew who the man was because even her husband, Bruce, hadn't come to visit her yet since she was so new, but they actually all figured that he was her husband, Bruce, and didn't give it another thought because the conversation that this young man had with Arliss appeared to be a bit serious, though no one heard exactly what was said, but they did speak for nearly 20 minutes. The young man appeared to be in his early 20s, had blonde hair, and stood around 5 foot 10, meaning that he seemed to match the description of the man going into the memorial church shortly after Arliss did, just before she was killed. So this was a really difficult situation because some of her coworkers could have probably identified this man had they, you know, seen him again, but nobody did. And the description they had of him was a fairly basic one. So there really wasn't anything police could do about it, especially since this young man never came forward to identify himself, which to me is a bit suspicious, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it definitely does feel suspicious. And again, he does match that description of the person that was seen going into the memorial church. But, you know, again, that was also a very basic description as well. Yeah, and it's hard to say who this guy is, what he wanted, if he had anything to do with Arliss's killing, or if this is just some random guy. Yeah, I mean, it really is just so hard to know what this encounter was about. So as the investigation progressed, a memorial was held for Arliss in the very place that her life was taken the Stanford Memorial Church on Tuesday, October 15th, 1974. Her family flew out from Bismarck, just totally gobsmacked and disturbed that something like that could have happened to their beautiful and bright young daughter and sister. And actually, in attendance was only her family, Bruce's family, and a few of Arliss's co-workers, since they didn't have any friends yet. Thus, her family held a separate service and funeral back in Bismarck, North Dakota, with all of her loved ones, after her body was transported there for burial about two weeks later. And creepy enough, during the week of Halloween, 
Arliss's temporary grave marker was stolen from the site of her burial. And the weird thing about that was that it was the only one in the entire cemetery that was stolen. So was this some poor-tasted Halloween prank? Or was her killer someone that she had known back in Bismarck? Well, speaking of Bismarck, a rumor started back in Arliss's hometown that she was involved with a satanic cult who followed and stalked her to California just to murder her. And this rumor was heavily perpetrated by a serial killer that most of you know, the son of Sam or David Berkowitz. So after David Berkowitz was found guilty of killing at least six people in 1970s New York, he claimed to have information about Arliss's murder while he sat in prison. In a 1979 letter, so five years after Arliss was found, David Berkowitz wrote, quote, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California, Stanford University. With this letter was a photo of a satanic group and a book titled The Anatomy of Witchcraft. Now, this rumor was already popping around Bismarck because apparently before moving to California, Arliss had attended some sort of event for a local satanic cult in Bismarck, and she had gone there to try and convert some of the members to Christianity. So the rumor goes that someone there then began stalking her, followed her to California, and killed her. But as stated best by a retired captain for the Stanford Department of Public Safety named Raoul Neimeyer, he said, quote, without any specific information, where were we going to get with it? But as David Berkowitz continued to push this rumor, police headed across country to New York to speak with him on the matter. And after doing so, they felt confident that he had no actual evidence or real information about Arliss to share. So that just turned into a dead end. And it's so interesting that he involved himself in a case that was all the way across the country. And, you know, we see a lot of serial killers or just people who are in prison do this like say oh i've got information on this case when they really don't and it's just it's just dumb yeah i don't know if his motive was to get a lesson sentence i can't imagine since he was found guilty of murdering six people so i mean how, how much less than life can you get for something like that yeah i don't so, know what they were going to do for him yeah i have no idea but it is interesting that he that he wrote this but anyway so as arliss's case turned cold sadly over the 1970s Law enforcement couldn't ignore that there were multiple other young people murdered around the same time in the same general area. On February 16th, 1973, so over a year and a half before Arliss was killed, a 21-year-old woman named Leslie Perloff had recently graduated from Stanford and was living in Palo Alto working at a law library. She had studied history and loved traveling and writing poetry, and she even painted. And sadly, before she was killed, she had headed out into nature to photograph a scene and paint it as a gift for her mom's birthday. And it was there in the foothills above the Stanford campus along the Stanford Dish hiking trail where she was found strangled by her own scarf and sexually assaulted. Then, seven months later, on September 11, 1973, a 20-year-old Stanford student named David Levine was found stabbed 15 times in the back in front of the Meyer Library on the Stanford campus. He was from Ithaca, New York, and headed off to Stanford to study physics, being described by those who knew him as brilliant and a hard worker. Then, six months later, on March 25, 1974, a 21-year-old woman named Janet Ann Taylor was found strangled to death and sexually assaulted on Sand Hill Road just outside of the town of Stamford. And although she didn't go to Stamford herself, there was a connection because her father had been the athletics director there. Janet had been studying at Kenyatta College and was last seen trying to hitchhike back home. Then, seven months later, was Arliss's murder, and less than two years after that, on July 20th, 1976, a 25-year-old man named Edward McNeil was found murdered inside his Menlo Park apartment, which is right next to Palo Alto and Stanford. He had been strangled to death and was bound with tape, 
and had been sitting there for two days before he was found. I gotta say, 1970s, like, Northern California, like, in this area, Palo Alto, Stanford, Santa Cruz. I mean, you had... San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, San Francisco. You had you had people like um, the, the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. You had people like Ed Kemper. Uh, just so many different brutal murders happening around this campus in that time frame. It is so weird and true. And as I was researching this case, I found police talking about that a lot, like a lot of different quotes discussing how heavy the serial killer activity was in California during this time period, which is so insane to think about that it really was quite heavy. Yeah, it was. You know, I remember watching uh, documentaries about Edmund Kemper and all the murders that he did around UC Santa Cruz and in that area. And UC Santa Cruz is very close to Stanford as well. I mean, they're all all of these places are within Northern California. So yeah, it's very terrifying that just in the 1970s, there was so, so much murder happening. And that's why this is more confusing for police because they're thinking there's all these murders of these young people in this exact area over a short, a relatively short period of time. Yeah, are they connected to one person? Is it multiple people doing it, you know? Exactly. Well, crazy enough, multiple of these cases actually came to a conclusion in the same manner during the same year, which was 2018, including Arliss's. For years, it was speculated that at least a few of these murders were connected because there were so many similarities. And on Halloween 2018, a 74-year-old man named John Getru was being surveilled by police as he had been a long suspect in a few of these cases. Well, police watched as he entered a medical building in Northern California with his wife and threw out a coffee cup outside. And obviously thinking very quickly, two Santa Clara County investigators were swift in safely grabbing this cup to see if possibly his DNA would finally match these 50 plus year old murders. And when they ran his DNA against multiple crime scenes, it was a match for two of them. That of 21-year-olds Leslie Perlove and Janet Taylor. But they weren't the first women he killed, because 10 years earlier in June of 1963, then 18-year-old John Getru was living in West Germany with his family due to his father's position in the military. And for reference, John was actually born in Ohio. So he headed off to his high school's disco, where he met a fellow student, 15-year-old Margaret L. Williams. And after the dance, he took her to the school's baseball field where he raped and beat her nearly to death. And sadly, although she did not die that night, she did die later due to complications from the severe head injury that she had sustained from John. Well, get this, he was caught for this murder and even arrested that same year as an 18-year-old, but he was only sentenced to 10 years in prison. Now, devastatingly, he would only serve about six years before he was paroled and released. But of course, he was far from rehabilitated. Because a few years later, after returning to the United States, he went on to kill Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor. And although he did go on to get married and have two children, who knows if he murdered more people, considering he wasn't arrested until the age of 74. Which is just... Insane. I mean, I'm so glad that they caught him at some point, but it's sad that it took that long because this guy's obviously a monster. Absolutely. And it, and it really does make your mind wonder if he could be connected to any other cases. Well, after being found guilty of murdering both Leslie and Janet, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. But that only turned out to be another two years because these trials didn't occur until 2021 and 2022. And on September 22nd, 2023, so this year, John Getru died in Stockton, California from currently unreleased causes at the age of 79. David Levine's murder was also potentially linked to John Getru, but he was never proven to have been behind it, sadly, and David's case, as well as Edward McNeil's, remain unsolved to this day. But like Heath said, in 2018, answers also came to Arliss's case. So basically, the years continued to pass after her murder, and police just could not figure out who killed Arliss Perry. However, 
They did keep the DNA evidence in her case, hoping that one day it would bring a fruitful match. Very smart. I know it's so sad that in some cases we cover the DNA gets lost or it gets damaged or... Or they just didn't believe that DNA technology would catch up some, you know, sometime later in the future. And yeah, so they didn't save it. Exactly. But they did in this case. They were very diligent about that. And obviously, as it goes, when cases go cold, there can't be someone working on it every day. But Arliss's case was frequently looked at. And over the years, investigators just kept coming back to nighttime security guard Stephen Crawford. They even started questioning him again in 2016, but he maintained his innocence. With better DNA technology by then, police were interested in testing his DNA to see if it was a match, but they didn't have it. They did have Bruce Perry's DNA and were able to concretely determine with modern technology that he was not involved. But Stephen wasn't giving it up. So just like with John Gatrue, investigators collected items of Stephen's garbage to see if his saliva DNA would match what was taken from the crime scene back in 1974. And in 2018, the results came back. It was a match. It's unclear why the palm print didn't match Stevens back in the day or the partial palm print, though it's possible that, you know, something got messed up since they did only have a partial anyway. But now they had a DNA match, so it was official that the man long suspected of killing Arliss was behind it after all and able to live a normal life for over 40 years afterwards. Which again is just really devastating and bizarre that these different cases that we're talking about came to resolution in the same year in the same way and they both were in their 70s and got away with it for over 45 years yeah you know when we started this podcast a long time ago i i said in an episode that all of these old fuckers are going down due to this new dna technology which we have with genealogy now which is amazing and it's crazy to see these old guys that are in their 70s 80s you know, being put in handcuffs and going to prison for murder. Well, luckily, now that we have the technology, cases won't take so long to solve, or most of them won't. Hopefully, yeah. So these pieces of shit can't get away with it for 45 years. But before we get into what happened after this discovery, let's talk about who Stephen was. So he was born on February 11th, 1946 in Los Angeles, California, again, making him 28 years old when he killed Arliss Perry. He was the president of his high school band and played drums and then went on to be in the U.S. Air Force. When he did return to California, he started working for the Stanford Department of Public Safety in 1971, where he worked as a police officer for about a year. But then he was demoted, if you will, to a security guard when a new police chief came in and changed up to 75% of the officer's positions. So this really pissed Stephen off because he wanted to be an officer and not a security guard. But he stayed in this position until 1976 when he left Stanford altogether for San Jose, California. So he left two years after Arliss was killed. And obviously San Jose, for those who know the Bay Area, is not far at all from Palo Alto. Yeah, pretty close. And Stanford. But while he was there in, uh, you know, in Stanford, while he was working there, he was able to obtain a blank certificate, which he used to forge a false diploma later on. He also stole thousands of dollars worth of items from the university. So this guy was committing crimes left and right. And probably his chief of police knew how much of a ding-dong this guy was, and that's why he was demoted. Well, I wonder because, I mean, 75% of the officers were switched around. Well, yeah, I, I totally get that. But, but maybe. But maybe, maybe. yeah, who knows? who knows? So in 1992, his then ex-wife actually reported him for all of these things because she was eventually told, you know, you tell your partner everything. Sure. And she, she told on him after they split up. And so for all these things that he did, he was caught and charged, but given a six-month suspended sentence with two years probation. So that's all he got. And as investigators continued to look over Arliss's case, Stephen just always stuck out to them. And when the DNA was a match, they headed to Stephen's house to arrest him. On June 28th, 2018 at 9.04 a.m., 
Santa Clara County Sheriff's detectives descended upon 72-year-old Stephen Crawford's San Jose apartment with a search warrant. Now, after Stephen opened the door and heard about why they were there, Stephen requested a few minutes so that he could get dressed, which he was granted. But when police felt that it was taking too long, they got a key from the apartment building manager and made their way inside. When they reached Stephen's bedroom, he was calmly sitting on the bed with a gun in his hand, which totally shocked police. So they ran and they ducked for cover. Now, as soon as they did, they heard a single gunshot go off and found Stephen Crawford lying dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which was all captured on the police's body cams. Which is just crazy that this was able to happen. Like, they were there for a search warrant so that they could also arrest him, right? They wanted to... The DNA was a match. They were there to search his home. Yeah. And then to be able to make the arrest. And they give him a few minutes to get dressed. It's the morning. Maybe he's in his robe or his pajamas or whatever. But the fact that he then went inside and essentially locked the door and then did what he did and they just caught him in the act... Like, it's just insane that that happened. And it just says more than anything to me that he was guilty as hell. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I imagine that Stephen probably knew that one day that was going to come. I'm sure he was watching the news develop and, you know, the DNA technology develop over the years and probably knew that at some point he was going to have to pull that gun out of a dresser drawer and take his own life. And 44 years too late. So once they processed this new suicide scene, police finally started searching his studio apartment for any other evidence that could lead them to Arliss Perry's murder. Bags of items were removed from the home to process, though we're still unsure what and if they found anything of use or relevance. We do know that they found a, quote, hastily written suicide note on a computer table about a foot away from his bed. So all that police have announced thus far is that the note appeared to be rambling and doesn't specifically mention murder, and that it appears to have been written two years earlier in 2016, which was the same year that investigators began questioning him about Arliss's case again. Also found in his home was the book The Ultimate Evil by Maury Terry. Now, this is interesting because it was written 13 years after Arliss's murder in 1987, and it actually includes a segment about Arliss Perry's murder in the book. Found in Stephen's home. Exactly. And this is how the book is described online. Quote, A terrifying investigation into one of America's most dangerous satanic cults. An extraordinary expose that presents new evidence linking Charles Manson and the son of Sam to the cult network. Yeah, I tried to figure out if he had the whole book or just the sleeve, because I read that it was like the like the cover of the book that he had. But either way, the fact that this was in his home and Arliss's murder is mentioned in it, and then there's that possible connection to a satanic cult, which is that rumor that was going around. And then like the son of Sam is in this book too. It's all just so wild. Now, police were weary to consider Stephen behind other murders in the area, but felt that it was definitely a possibility. On this, Sheriff Lori Smith said after Stephen's passing, quote, During this time, there were a lot of serial killers in this area. You don't say. We have a chart of unsolved homicides, and we're looking at when he was living in this area. After Bruce and Arliss's family were given the news of Stephen's guilt, they did feel a bit of closure. Arliss's 67-year-old sister Karen stated, quote, I've always believed that it was an inside person because it took a while for them to lay her out the way she was done. This was someone who is not going to be interrupted, and he felt confident that he was not going to be interrupted. On closure, Karen added, quote, It does for me. My mom, I'm not so sure. She's 88 years old and she's struggling with the why. I said, you know, mom, I don't think we're ever going to know the why. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. 
Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all new case for you guys to dive into. I am so glad this case got some closure after so many years. One thing I forgot to add that's so sad is actually Arliss's dad died just a few months before it was uncovered that Steven, you know, that his DNA matched. And like his lifelong goal was to figure out who did this to his daughter. So it's so, so awful that he died so shortly before answers came to her case. Yeah. And I I just, it's crazy to think that after 45 years, this guy finally was going to be held accountable. Justice was going to be served. And we could have gotten answers. Yeah, and he was a coward, he took his own life, and he just couldn't face the consequences of his own actions. Exactly. So thank you guys so much for listening to this. Again, again, thank you for listening, but also, again, thank you to Scott for recommending this case to us and for all the work that you did on the book on our list. If you guys want to read that, it is called Murder Under God's Eye, The Nightmare Killing in Stamford's Church. Yes, please make sure you go check out that book. Also, just want to remind you guys again that I'm going to be dropping my very first single called Numb on Wednesday, November 15th under the name Ghostly. You can go give me a follow on Instagram at ghostly.la. Actually, hang tight after this quick outro and we'll play a little clip of that song, Numb. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call click or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done